0: I cannot think of a better way to prepare for the new year than to focus this morning on Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Uh, tomorrow and the day after, uh, the uh, gyms will be filled with people who have decided that the most important thing to do at the beginning of the year is to shed the extra 5 to 10 pounds uh, they put on over Christmas and physical training is of some value, and many of us would do well to buy those gym memberships and make them uh, put to good use. Sorry, I just was reminded of a story I can't resist telling you. I remember years ago, Christy and I did it, I knew even as we were doing it, it was insane, but on January 1st, we bought a weight machine. And it was the worst kind. It was the cheap kind, just a few pulleys moving your body weight around, and uh, and uh, and it was all we could afford. And we had a larger bedroom, nothing fancy, but there was a lot of space in it. And so this this pulley-driven weight machine wound up sitting in our living room. Or sorry, in our bedroom for many many years, and it 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 it, it kept a lot of clothing hung. And uh, and it was very, it was helpful to walk over it each night. I really enjoyed that, that was a helpful thing. And and occasionally I would say to Christy, this thing has got to go in the trash. It's useless, useless especially because we don't use it. And so it needs to go. And I remember Christy's response was, I need it there. (laughs) There's just something about having that hope that you're gonna make good on this resolve. Anyway, this time of year, we tend to make resolves about the things that matter to us, the things that we deem important. And I think this verse sets the agenda for what we ought to think of as important. So whatever you wish that others would do for you, do that for them. This is the law and the prophets. I love this command. I love it. Psalm 119, verse 127, King David says, I love your commandments. They are gold, above gold, above fine gold. He, likes, he says, I love what you command more than I love money, more than I love stable, precious metals. Have you ever said that in your heart about one of God's commands? or all of God's commands. Have you ever found yourself in love with what God says to do, with what he commands? I love this command because, well, I'm gonna give you about seven reasons over the course of this sermon why I love this command. The first reason I'll give you is that it's a summarizing command. It's a summarizing command. It's a command that takes in all the other commands. It's a command that really is at the heart of every other command. In the Sermon on the Mount, we've handled a lot of different topics, haven't we? As we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we've looked at a lot of different topics. We've looked at lust. Jesus says that if you lust, it's adultery, so you should gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. We've looked at anger. Jesus says that anger is murder and that it must be fought as something that could take you to hell. We've looked at divorce and we've seen that divorce is forbidden except in the rarest of circumstances. We've looked at oaths. Your yes is to be yes, your no is to be no. We've looked at retaliation that we're to turn the other cheek when other people insult us. We've looked at all kinds of topics. It's very easy to look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, no, there's a sermon that deals with a lot of different topics. But the reality is that all of those different topics that the Sermon on the Mount deals with are all just applications of this one verse. Of this one verse. Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do this for them? Has anyone ever wished that someone would commit adultery on them? Or that they would be lied to? Or that they would be divorced for no reason? Has anyone desired that other people would break their word to them? Or retaliate more heavily against them? That's never what we want for ourselves. And it's amazing because if we simply do what we want others to do for us, then all of the laws God has ever given will be accomplished in our lives. So this one verse uh, summarizes every other commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, and I won't take the time to explain this to you this morning, but what I could just say is that this verse is actually the, the end of the ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It started back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, where Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of God. So it starts with, hey listen, I'm going for something from the heart. I'm going for something real. I'm going for something powerful, coming from the inside out. And unless you have that righteousness, That actually transforms your lives you will not be in heaven with me it starts there and then it handles all those different topics divorce lust adultery giving you name it and now jesus sort of puts the second parenthesis on all of his teaching and says this let me boil it down however you wish other people would treat you, that's how you should treat other people. He's summarizing the whole Sermon on the Mount. But he's not just summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. He's summarizing the entire ethical, moral, right and wrong teaching of the entire Bible. Do you see what the verse says? He says... It says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets, that's just an old testament way of summarizing the Old Testament. What's the Old Testament? It's the law and the prophets. That's what it is. You got the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. You got the prophets, all that together. It's the Old Testament. Jesus says that this teaching that whatever you want others to do for you, you should do for others. This is the law and the prophets. You're like, man, I can't get a hold of this huge Old Testament, and now they want me to start a Bible reading plan again, I'm going to get lost in numbers somewhere in mid-January. If you want to understand the entire Old Testament, you can't do better than Jesus summarizing it for you. What's it all about? What's it all driving towards? What is every verse on every page aiming to get you to do? As you would be loved. Love. This is the law and the prophets. And so we begin this morning, this new year really, with a command that focuses all the other commands. Every single other command in the Bible is only an outworking of this command. How many of you know how you'd like to be treated? I have a running dialogue in my own mind about how I'd like to be treated pretty much all the time. And occasionally I share how I would like to be treated with those around me and inform them how they may or may not have treated me. Just the way I would like to be. And I, I've got it, I've got general categories, I've got specific applications, I've got it all. I know how I want to be treated. What Jesus says is that moral compass that is just pulsing and beating in you about how you want to be treated, that's your guide. But not for how you want to be treated, but for how you ought to be treating other. People. So we begin this year. We begin this sermon with this reality that this one verse summarizes all the moral and ethical teaching, all the right and wrong teaching of the entire Bible. So it's a summary command. It's also a grace-based command. It's also a grace-based based command. Now this is really important, because here's the facts. Uh, Everybody knows you're supposed to love other people like you want to be loved. That's that's not even new. That's not even anything special. In fact, you you find variations of this in in the religions of the world. Um, The law of God that the Jews still believe says love your neighbor as yourself Confucius said, do not do unto others what you would not want others to do unto you. It's not exactly the same, and we'll point out the differences in a minute. But this idea that you should treat others the way you want to be treated is not even distinctively biblical. So why would you want to come hear a sermon on it the year the day before the new year what's that going to do for you hey everybody knows you should treat others the way you want to be treated we didn't do it last year we're not going to do it again this year Uh, what, what are we supposed to get out of this is this sort of a pep talk hey let's hey everybody 2024 is going to be different this is different it's like every political campaign you ever saw right if you vote for this guy oh there will be green forests and green grass and waterfalls and sunshiny skies and balanced budgets and free everything for everyone all the time. And of course we vote for this guy or that guy and nothing ever significantly changes. So why on earth would we think that just thinking about this command is gonna help us at all? Listen to this, especially because of this reality. The fact is that thinking about commands, apart from Jesus Christ, also always makes us worse. Have you ever noticed that? I know I've used this illustration with you before, but it's the easiest and quickest. You know the best way to get a kid to steal cookies out of the cookie jar, right? You tell him not to. You just lay down a law. You tell them the command. And as soon as you tell them the command, you you radically increase the potential for disobedience in the room. And of course, the Apostle Paul knew that dynamic, didn't he? He knew that. He says, while we were living in the flesh, that is when we were living apart from Jesus, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work. Putting the law in a sinner's soul is like dropping an Alka-Seltzer in a glass of water. It makes all the worst stuff foam and gurgle and come to the top. The Apostle Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, when he got told what was right, it actually increased his desires to do what is wrong. And so I can come here this morning and I can say to you, hey, guess what? We should all love each other. Have I got an idea that you'll all think is a good one? We should all love each other just the way we want to be loved. Everyone agree? Amen. And you could go to a Confucian meeting and they'd say something similar. You could go to a, you could go to a synagogue, you'd hear something similar. You, you could go to the guy who's not religious but just spiritual. What did he tell you? We should treat others the way we want to be treated. So what on earth makes this different? And here's what it is that the man who gave this sermon and spoke this law and spoke this truth then went on to walk up Calvary's hill to die on a cross for the sinners he was teaching. That the one who gave this instruction to love others as we want to be loved did it like it's never been done before. He knows, knew that if he was a sinner on his way to hell, he would want someone to step in and rescue him from that punishment. And that's exactly what he did, is he stepped in and rescued sinners from that punishment. And he didn't just do it as an example. It's, it's not just that he's saying, hey, losers, Y'all failed, look what I can do. He did it not as an example, but as a substitute, as a sacrifice. You and I's wanting to care about ourselves more than caring about others makes us worthy of hell. It makes us damnable. It It means that we should die and be condemned by God the Father. Jesus Christ came and loved us even when we were unlovely and died on the cross for us because he loved his neighbor more than himself because he loved, he wanted to do for others what he knew he would want done for him. And this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, it comes before Jesus died on the cross because, well, he had to preach and live before he could die, but it comes before he died on the cross, but it comes from the one who died on the cross. And that idea of grace should never be separated from this commandment. And, and it's not actually separated in the, in the, in the text. Maybe if you look at it there, you notice that in verse 11, Jesus says, this is the verse before the one we're studying, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father who's in heaven give good get, good things to those who ask him? In other words, right before he gives this command, he says, remember this, you're reconciled children to the Father. You've got a gracious Father. You're not out in the world looking out for yourself. It's not all on you. You've got a Father you can call on, and when you call on him, he'll answer you, and he's generous, and he loves to give you good gifts. And since he treats you so well, So, says the ESV, or therefore, says almost every other translation, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. If you go about trying to obey God's richest command in your own strength so you can get into God's good graces, you will wake up every morning with a moral hangover just feeling brutalized by how badly you've done. But if you see that God has accepted you in Christ and that he's done everything to receive you, then his command becomes not a way to earn his approval, but just a way of saying thank you and a way of reflecting to God the the grace he's given to us. This command is a summarizing command, you summarize the whole Bible's ethical teaching. Whatever you want others to do to you, do that to them. It's a summarizing command. It's not just a summarizing command, but it's also a command that guides us through all of life, and it's grace-based. It comes to us as children of God. The third thing I want us to see is that it's a dividing command. It's a dividing command. This command is obeyed by those who are being saved and is not obeyed by those who are not being saved. This command divides the true from the false. This command divides, as one person put it, the true Christians from the posers. This, this command. You'll remember Jesus started this sermon, at least the ethical teachings of this sermon, the moral, the right and the wrong teaching of this sermon. He started this, this whole section of the sermon by telling us in no uncertain terms that in verse 21 of chapter 5, verse 20 of chapter 5, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We can preach all we want about justification by by faith about how we're declared righteous by Jesus Christ, how we are accepted in the beloved by pure grace, how we are saved by grace and grace alone and not of works. But if we don't make this equally clear, we'll be lying to people. If you are saved by grace, you will go on to obey by grace, and if you don't, you're not saved. If you don't, you are not. You might go to church, you might sit in a pew, you might go to a Bible study, you might like Christian conferences, you might like Christian ministries, you might like Christian books. But if you do not grow to love people as you yourself want to be loved, then you are just as much a child of the devil as the man who has never heard the gospel. So this command becomes a dividing line God's people are those who love others as they themselves would want to be loved. Now, let me point something out to you before we move on from this point. I said that in Matthew seven 12, we're kind of coming to the end of the teaching, or the ethical teaching at least. The here's what you do, here's how you live. Teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, then what's the rest of the sermon? Well, it's four warnings. It's four warnings that if you don't do it, you'll be damned. And if you do do it, you can have assurance that you're saved. That's how Jesus, Jesus comes in the last sermon and comes for a moment of decision, if you will. Maybe I'll just remind you of what those four, those four sections are in the rest of the sermon. Immediately after our verse, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. In other words, there's a narrow gate that involves believing in me and doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's a broad and easy way that just involves doing whatever you feel like doing and it leads to destruction. So, what's he doing? He's summarizing the whole sermon. You must love. And he says, That's the narrow gate. Don't be deluded into the broad gate. And then he goes on and he tells us and he warns us about false teachers. Verse 15 Beware of false teachers. Well, what's the mark of a false teacher? You will know them by their fruits. What does that mean? The fruits of their lives will not be that they love others the way they themselves want to be loved. Verse 21, the most terrifying verses in Scripture. Listen to this. Listen to this. Listen to this like your soul depended on it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That's not, not everyone who lives. That's not everyone who, not everyone who claims to be a believer. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is someone in my kingdom. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, that is the one who is saved, is the one who loves others like they want to be loved and no others are saved at all. Not people who do prophecy, not people who do miracles, not even people who look like they've got the most credible claim to reality imaginable. And I love prophecy and miracles and all that stuff but none of it can be a replacement for ethical heart transformation, for a a life of costly love. Where there is no love, there is no salvation. And then, of course, one of Jesus' most famous illustrations. Everyone, verse 24, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock and everyone who ignores them will be like a man who built his house on sand. What does it look like to build your house on a rock? Do you see it there? It's right there in verse 24. It's the one who hears these words of mine and does them. You build your life on a rock if you hear Jesus' words and you do them. If you hear his words, believe on me, and you will be saved, and you hear his command, whatever you wish others would do for you, that's what you do for them. Whoever hears that and does that has a life that will remain stable in the final judgment. Whoever does not do that will have a life that will be washed away and destroyed in the final judgment. One of the things that we need to remember as a church is that we're not just individuals in these pews sitting here figuring out our own spiritual lives. We are those who are responsible for encouraging each other as long as it's called today that none of us would miss out on the grace of God. That we would say, hey hey brother, hey sister, I don't think you're walking in a way that puts others ahead of yourself. And I want you to walk in that way because that's the path of salvation. Not earning salvation, but truly demonstrating salvation. This verse is the demarcation line. This verse is the dividing line. This is the reality. This this is what separates the true from the false. And if if you're here this morning and you're like, I may be false. I've always sort of thought I was a Christian. I kind of was in, in church a little bit or I had a grandma who went to church or I've got a little bit of background in church or if I had to ask me what religion I was, I'd say Christian, that's me. But, but in terms of my life being gripped so that the focal belief is Christ and, the, and the, the governing thought in my mind day in and day out is what would I want others to do for me? That's what I should do for others. That's foreign to me. Well, if it's foreign to you, You're not saved, but you can be. You can be. And in fact, it's so amazing. The way to be saved is simply this, to repent of your sins, to run away from them, and just to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the one who loved you even when you didn't love him, who thought, what would I want if I was in their position going to hell? What would I want to have happened to me? And he stepped in and died on the cross for sinners like you and me. If you trust him, he'll save you and he will create a love in your heart that wants to love other people like the way you'd want to be loved. And you don't need 10,000 classes to get there, you can believe right now. Because the salvation doesn't come through lessons, it doesn't come through time, it comes through him. Trusting him will save you. Well, not only is this verse um, summarizing, and not only is it this dividing verse, but it's also very costly, it's very costly. When you devote yourself to loving others as you yourself want to be loved, the results can be costly. One example comes from the life of the Dutch Anabaptist Dirk Willem, or Wilhelm, probably. I've come across the story of Dirk Willem a number of times over my life, but uh, I was given it again in an article forwarded to me by Brother Ben Hedrick a few months ago. And uh, in the article, it, it, it tells the story like this. In the winter of 1569, that's a while back, the Dutch Anabaptist, Dirk Willems, made a daring escape from the prison where he was being held by the Roman Catholic authorities because of his faith. So he's an Anabaptist, a modern day Mennonite, and he's, uh, and he's being held by the Roman Catholic authorities. He gets out from prison. You'd think this is good, this is, God. this is wonderful. And he fled across a frozen pond with a guard from the prison coming after him. And I, I have a hard time not finding the next part a little comical. But it turns out the guard was a little heavier than Brother Dirk. And even though Dirk was able to go across the icy pond without breaking through, uh, the guard was not so fortunate. And he went down into the cold water where he was going to drown and die. And the guard cried out for help. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets." So here's this guard drowning. Here's Dirk on the free side of the river, making his escape, and he thinks, what would I want to have happen if I was about to drown in the frozen water? And he goes back, and he rescues the guard. And the guard puts him back in jail. And he's burned at the stake, May 16th, 1659. That's the kind of love Christ builds in his people. With all of our talk about rights and fighting oppression on the right and the left, we could miss this. The Christians have historically been called by their own Lord and Savior to be a people who no matter what the situation, no matter how costly, would rather do good to others even if it gets them killed. That's Christianity. And if you're like, well, what about this all getting killed business? Just go back to the Savior. He's the one who died for us. Well, it's not just a a costly command. It's also a very beautiful command. And it's interesting, uh, even non-Christians have noticed this. I read this week, this is quite fascinating, about a Roman emperor named Alexander Severus. And he was the emperor in 2022, no, 222, to 235 so Christian church has taken off in those first couple centuries Uh, there's lots of persecution lots going on and Alexander Severus somehow gets a hold of this command of Jesus and he has it engraved in the walls of his palace in gold that's where we get the term the golden rule It came to me known as the golden rule because Alexander Severus thought, this is such a beautiful command. This is so good. This is so amazing that I'm going to put it on my palace walls in gold. We don't know that Severus was ever converted, but he saw the beauty of the command. And I wonder if you've seen that. I'll I'll confess to you that there are times in my life where I get I get really down at the minutia of Christian obedience, and I'm really detailing exactly what everything is. Is that, is that gossip, or is that just asking for help? Is that, is that anger, or is that just uh, firm exhortation? And in the midst of all that sort of casuistry and all that kind of like thinking, what exactly is the right situation here? You miss the big principle, which is I'm supposed to do the most beautiful thing in the world right now. I'm supposed to love. Whether I'm speaking, whether I'm, whether I'm thinking about how to have my tone of voice, what's supposed to be governing me is love. The 19th century Anglican Bishop, J.C. Ryle, he wrote this so wisely. Listen to this. This is a golden rule indeed. It does not merely forbid all petty malice and revenge, all cheating and overreaching. It does much more. It settles a hundred difficult points, which in a world like this are continually arising between people. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. It sweeps the whole debatable ground with one mighty principle. It shows us a balance and measure by which everyone may see at once what is his duty. Is there something we would not like our neighbor to do to us? Then let us always remember that this is the thing we ought not do to him. Is there a thing we would like him to do to us? Then this is the very thing we ought to do to him. How many intricate questions would be decided at once if this rule were honestly used? It's interesting. As our culture is less and less and less shaped by Christian virtues, it's interesting that we constantly need more and more laws. It's not an accident. It's not just happening that way. When you do not have a people who are governed by one principle, I must in all circumstances do what I wish other people would do for me you need to come in with a million laws that dictate every specific com- thing a person's supposed to do and then new bodies to enforce them. When there's a lack of self-government, it creates a need for more and more big government. But it changes everything when people, gripped by the message of Christ, are motivated apart from human laws and in a million, Decisions you could never write rules and regulations for just to do what they wish others would do for them. Sixth point it's a proactive command. I mentioned earlier this command can be found elsewhere. I mentioned earlier that it's not entirely unique, and that was only partially true. This command does show up elsewhere. I mentioned that it showed up in the teachings of Confucius, who said, do not do to others what you would not want others to do unto you. It also shows up in the teaching of Rabbi Hallel, kind of in a funny way. A Rabbi Hallel was asked if he could explain the whole Old Testament to a Gentile hopping on one leg. In other words, he was asked if he could make an elevator pitch for the Old Testament. Could you just summarize the whole thing? Real quick. And a Rabbi Hillel, who was almost a contemporary of Jesus, said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. Go and learn. Did you notice the difference? It's very, very similar. Sometimes what I've just read to you has been called the silver rule. The difference is that what Hillel and Confucius and others state negatively Christ states positively. Confucius said, don't do what you don't want done to you. Jesus says, whatever you wish was done to you, that's what you should go and do. And and in one sense, you could see a person could obey Confucius or Hillel, one preacher put it this way, just by staying in bed all day. Just by keeping yourself out of trouble just by keeping your nose clean, just by making sure you're not annoying. There's many of you who spend your lives calculating how not to be noticed or annoying. And you might content yourself that you are fulfilling the silver rule. But Jesus doesn't just say keep your nose clean. He says proactively do to others what you wish they would do For you think about the first day of the church when the Holy Spirit falls on the people of God. What do they do? The rich guys all start selling their lands and giving to the poor. It's wild. It's almost like they were possessed by a spirit of love that says, now if I was in a different circumstance than the one I'm in, what would I want to have happen to me? I would want others to give to me. It's a very, very proactive command. It drives loving churches and evangelism and works for social good. It's been an unstoppable history-shaping force, this command, these last 2,000 years since it was given from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, let's end here. It's a very practical command. It's a very practical command. In my State of the Church Address, where I kind of laid out some burdens I had for Emmanuel this coming year, I mentioned four areas I'd like to focus on this year. Four areas I would love to grow with you. If I could look back on 2024 and say, man, God really did these things, here will be four things I would really love to see Him do. To grow us in our empowerment to the Holy Spirit, In our showing hospitality, in our evangelism, and our discipleship. Now, these aren't something I got walking up to the top of a mountain looking for a special word from God. They're all just things in the Bible, right? Discipleship, evangelism, hospitality, the Spirit. Maybe we could see how this verse touches those biblical emphases. Let's think about the Spirit. One of the most important things you can think about when you think about the empowerment of the Spirit is guarding the unity of the Spirit. That's what we're told to do in Ephesians chapter four. We're to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is, God loves to empower those who are careful to stay united. God loves to bless those who will not tolerate division in their midst and those who love to make peace. So let me ask you to bring to your mind the hardest relationship you're in. Or let me ask you to bring to your mind the hardest relationships that you're in. Wouldn't it be nice if there was always just one? Hard relationship? Where's a place that the the unity of the spirit could crack? Your marriage, your house, your GCG, your friendships. Are you treating the person or people you're having trouble getting along with the way you want to be treated? If you could imagine the best possible way to be treated in difficult times, what would that look like? What would that be like? I know, I told you this earlier, but I know how I like to be treated. I like it when people assume the best about me. I like being treated patiently, I like being treated kindly. And I, this isn't all about me, I'm assuming some of you would resonate with some of these truths. I like it when I am understood in light of my best aspirations instead of my worst moments. I love it when people assume my motives are good even if they need to correct me for something that I've done that's bad. I love being forgiven easily, freely, and warmly. I like I forgive you more than I forgive you. And I bet you do too. I like it when a relationship has been severed, when there's actually proactive effort to make the relationship warm and good, again. I like all that, I love that. I I have a running dialogue in my brain whenever that's not experienced by me. And, And what's amazing here is Jesus isn't saying, you don't have to memorize the whole Bible before you get here. Just notice what's going on in your own heart. How do you like to be treated? Do you see Jesus pointing you to that? How do you like to be treated? Does anyone here know how they like to be treated? Yeah, me too. Now that's not just the fuel for your bitterness and self-justification. That's the guide for your love. That's what Jesus is saying. Could there be unity if you were crucified to your own desires and you proactively treated them as you would be treated? What if all the wrongs you're seeing in them became the standard for how you should pursue them? Would the unity of the spirit be better guarded among us this year, this week, today? Hospitality. With the exception of a few extreme hermitish introverts, Christians like to spend time with one another. And even the hermitish introverts come around fairly often too. Christians like spending time with Christians. They love to be in each other's homes or some other warm environment. And I've also found that few things hurt Christians more than when no one invites them over. If you wanted to talk about things that come to my desk or come into my office, it would be often hurt Christians, hurt, by the fact that they have not been shown hospitality. I've also found that quite consistently that if Christians are not invited over enough times, or, and this is very common, by the people they want to be invited over by, I find this very often, people get invited over by lots of people, but it's not the people they wanted to invite them over, and so no one's been inviting them over. So I found quite consistently that if Christians are not invited over enough times, or by the people they want to be invited over by, they in turn stop having people over. But this should not be so. We are to have others over as we would want to be had over. If you were at a church for a short time, would you want to be shown hospitality? What if you had a few theological convictions that made cooking for you a challenge? Would you hope that no one would ever have you over? What if you were awkward? Would you want to be invited over even if you were awkward? What if you couldn't pay anyone back? What if you couldn't have anyone, you just didn't have the resources, there was no way you were having them over too. Would you want to never be invited over? No, whatever you wish that others would do for you, do that for them. This is the entire Bible. I, I I spent a good deal of time this week thinking, I should preach on this for a month. Because literally, if we were to get this, we would be light years ahead in our Christianity. Evangelism. If ever there was a place this verse applies, it must be evangelism. Now, unbelievers are not sitting at home thinking, I wish they would share the gospel with me as they had the gospel shared with them. That's not the way to come at this. But you as a Christian can think if someone knew I was on a path that led to eternal misery and destruction, would I want them to tell me the way of escape? If someone knew that I was missing out on the source of life and unspeakable joy, would I want them to make an awkward conversation and tell me? Oh, beloved, let this commandment move you to evangelistic action in 2024. Lastly, discipleship. And we can talk about discipleship at many levels. I actually think that the main discipleship ministry commanded in the New Testament is happening right now as I preach. So very often you'll talk to people that are like, "Uh, I'm not being discipled at my church. And I always want to say, If the guy in the pulpit is opening the Bible and explaining it, you're being discipled. But it is good, isn't it? When believers take a personal interest in one another's lives and begin to disciple one another. When more than just the pastor is discipling, and you, Manuel, are so good at this in so many ways, but it is beautiful when the body takes an ownership for one another and begins to really care for one another and help each other grow. And it's interesting, um, I have found that when you talk to Christians, one of the greatest sources of joy or pain in their life is the way they were or were not discipled. You will meet people deeply grieved by the fact that their father did not pour into them or their mother did not disciple them. Or no, in that church, no one would help them with their problems. So some of the deepest pains can come from being not discipled. But listen to me, listen to me on this one. The fondest memories many Christians have are about that time they got discipled. Actually, just looking at you, I can even think of some of these stories. A couple that invited you to a Bible study, a friend that began to meet with you for coffee, a pastor who took an interest in you, a small group of guys or gals who got together and started reading the Bible together with you, and it became a real time of kind of greenhouse, hothouse growth where you began to be poured into, and you really began to grow as other Christians took an interest in you. Now what's amazing, as I think about this, is that Emmanuel, many of you have those kind of memories about other people. And I want to point out to you that some of you, many of you, maybe even most of you, are now the age that the person pouring into you was when they were pouring into you. Are you glad they did it? Are you glad they did it? Now, do you think they were sitting in a pew somewhere thinking, I have it all together, it's time for me to start discipling? That's not how they perceive themselves, is it? They probably felt a lot like you do now. Still in need of the grace of God, but beginning to consider others, more important than themselves, beginning to consider what others, what you would want others to do to them, rather, I'm missing the verse up, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Would you like to be discipled? Dads, do you wish your dad had talked to you about spiritual things? You can talk to your children about spiritual things. Moms, do you wish you had women who had guided you in the things of God? You can be a woman who guides others in the things of God. We watch a lot of soccer on vacation time uh, in our house, and uh, soccer's like any sport. All, all you need is a half yard on the other guy. All you need is half a step in basketball. All you need is just to be one step ahead and you can make a crucial difference in the game. You don't need to be 100 steps of every person you disciple. Just a half a step, just a yard ahead, just one move ahead, just just a little further down the line or, or, or even just grabbing a book that's a lot further down the line and reading it with someone. Often in the context of hospitality, Or evangelism. If you love it when other people think about you and think, how could I invest in them? Other people will love it. If you think, how could I invest in them? So, this just to my mind ought to fill any desires for New Year's resolutions there may be in our soul. And if you're the kind of curmudgeon who's like, I hate New Year's resolutions, then they would just make other kinds of New Year's resolutions, not New Year's resolutions, just just resolutions in general. Lord God, by the Holy Spirit, would you help me to do to others whatever it is I wish they would do to me. And in this love, would you let me fulfill all that's pointed towards in all the Bible. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your grace to bring us your word this morning. We thank you for newness, new days, new weeks, new months, new years, new creations. Lord, as we set out in this new year, would you help us to be dominated by your love and your call to love? And would you make tangible differences in the maturity and the grace that's being displayed at Emmanuel. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen.